Hi there, I'm Lance Cottrell, your host at Feel the Boot, and today I'm talking to John Lee of PicFu. He's got an interesting story and company, but I brought him on in particular because of his interest in testing assumptions in businesses. So he's built an entire platform around testing messaging, testing ideas, pricing, images, product design, almost anything. And he really has a strong passion in the importance of doing this kind of testing very early before you spend time and money and effort into building solutions to make sure that you're actually building the right thing. And I'm excited enough about what he's doing that I asked him to give us a coupon code. I'm going to put it down in the description where you'll be able to get a substantial discount off the first test that you run on the PicFu platform. And I'm not an affiliate, I don't take anything from this, but I think it'll be a great tool for you going forward. And I hope you enjoy the interview. John, welcome to Feel the Boot. Thanks so much for having me. So we've talked a little bit before this recording and we exchanged some emails. Why don't you tell us a little bit just for context of what your startup does. Yeah, so my startup is named is called PicFu. Um, you can think of PicFu as a digital focus group. So the same way that large brands and CPGs like Procter & Gamble use large focus groups to figure out their product packaging, testing, marketing, all of that stuff, um, PicFu lets you do that in a self-service way. And we tap into the same global consumer panels that are used by the large CPGs. Um, so PicFu is self-service. You can come on the site, choose your target audience, ask a question, post up to eight different options to either choose from or get feedback from, and you can get responses and feedback from your target audience in typically 30 minutes or less. Very cool. But that's not actually where you started, right? No, it's not. So why don't, why don't you tell us that story? Because I think pivot stories are always interesting because so many companies end up doing things that are radically different than where they started. Yeah, so it's it's kind of a pivot story. It's kind of not really a pivot story. Um, so my co-founder and I, we have been uh, entrepreneurs for over a dozen years working together. Our backgrounds were in, uh, in large software development. I, I was at Microsoft and he was at Hewlett Packard. And um, we left our jobs to uh, start uh, building websites, actually. So our initial, uh, our initial company together was building a site that aggregated restaurant menus and put those online, uh, learned a lot about sort of just building sites, monetize, monetizing sites, SEO, or getting traffic, and so on. Along the way, we built a, a handful of other side projects. But the main thing where PicFu came from is that um, we, being a team of two, we kept having disagreements <clears throat> about um, design decisions. Like both of us are software engineers. And so, um, you know, without a ton of design experience. And so his, you know, his guess was as good as mine and my guess was as good as his. And every time we would butt heads, we'd ask our friends and family for feedback. And, you know, that they would be, we knew that they would be biased. And at some point they kind of got tired of giving feedback, you know? Um, and so when faced with a problem of tr of trying to get unbiased feedback, um, we we did what software engineers do, which is we built a tool. So we built a tool to get us unbiased feedback on our design decisions, um, logos, you know, logos, page layouts, 
uh, marketing copy, collateral, all of that stuff. And we just kind of put it on the side. Um, I think we put like a PayPal button on it, um, posted it to a handful of communities, but continued working on our main project. And that went on for uh, for a couple of years. And it, every every couple of months or so, we would check in and we saw that PicFu was growing. You know, hey, more and more people found it. See, people seem to like it. And then we'd go back to our main. Then we'd go back to our main project. A couple more months pass. We check again. Same thing. Oh, now it's showing up and being used in other verticals as well. That's fascinating. And then we'd we'd focus on the main project again. And so eventually, after a couple iterations of that, we realized that, you know, despite our best wishes, the traction on our main project was not going where we wanted it to go, and the traction on PicFu was growing. And so we decided to. Um, make a pivot there in terms of focusing our efforts, our time and energy on PicFu and growing it. And that's what we've been doing ever since. Yeah, it's funny how building a product to solve a problem that you can't find a good solution to tends to be a good way of identifying problems yes. that need solving. Yeah, when um, yeah, when you're, I, I guess the easiest way to build something that people might want is to start looking at your own problems first, solving those. And maybe if that's a big enough problem that you're solving, then that solution can prove useful for other people too. So obviously you you take testing seriously. How do you feel that testing fits into the process of building a startup, building a company of any sort? Um, I think that um, I think that testing assumptions and you know there, there's a phrase we use like test before you invest, like testing your assumptions, testing your hypotheses. Uh, not only lead, potentially lead to better outcomes, but they, um, but they reduce a lot of downside risk. I, I, so I see it, it, it. It's kind of like the two aren't exactly the same, right? Like you can't you can't test a hypothesis and prove that it's going to skyrocket, like it's going to be a rocket ship. But you can very quickly, and if you can test, you can very quickly disprove a hypothesis about. Oh well, you know, I think that this kind of marketing, this kind of marketing message towards this audience is going to be the thing that resonates, or this kind of product feature, or this kind of product benefit towards this potential target customer set is going to resonate or not. If you can test that out before you actually commit it to whether it's code or print or publication or whatnot, then you improve your chances of having a better outcome for that project. Right. Yeah. The, the more ways that you can fail, you eliminate before you spend money, the better off you are. Exactly. Do you have any examples of, of cases where your testing and experimentation led to you know, important effort savings or, or failed directions or you know, made a critical impact on your path? Yeah. On our path or on our customers? On yours, but or, or your customers. <clears throat> sure. Um, I mean, we've definitely helped a lot of customers and some of the biggest names in e-commerce as well. Um, there was there was one company where we we work with a lot of um, people who sell on Amazon, and there was a company uh, named Thrasio where they had a business which was to buy up individual Amazon shops and then optimize their uh, optimize their offerings, like their listings and then their products and so on. And so there was this one product called Angry Orange. It was a pet deodorizing product. It worked really well, you know, it worked really well, but it the design on the bottle and everything else was kind of subpar. Um, and so the the theory, the thesis behind uh, that the thra that the Thrasio team had was that they could purchase this uh, listing, rebrand the product, rebrand the bottle, and and do everything. Don't change the composition of the product at all, and that it could do better. So the decision that they faced was that 
that rebranding, they, they actually went through about 300 different designs for the rebranding process. And the, the one that they wanted involved a $50,000 um, production design change because they wanted an orange bottle because the product was named Angry Orange. They wanted it to pop you know, in the listings and on the store shelves and everything. And so to justify that decision, uh, that go no go decision, they went to pick Fu and ran about six polls, cost about $500, in total polled about 200 to 300 people. Um, so they got those results in about three days. And those results uh, validated that, yes, not just did, not only did the uh, design that they wanted to go with beat out the original design, it also beat out all the other variations that they were considering. So that gave, those tests gave them the confidence to pull the trigger on that rebranding decision. And then they pulled the trigger on it. And the day after they relaunched the product on Amazon with the new packaging and everything else, their sales 10x'd overnight. So it went from a $2 million a year brand to a $19.5 million a year listing, purely on the, on the basis of the rebranding, like, you know, full marketing rebrand and the packaging and everything else. That just to show how much of the decision making that we do, we we like to pretend that we're rational about these things, but yeah, the, the packaging, the look, the feel, the name, all those things matter so much. So, what sorts of things does PickFu lend itself to testing? What what you know? Where, where are the boundaries around that? Uh, sure. I mean, so on PickFu, you can uh, you can ask open ended uh, feedback. So. Um, PickFu basically lets you get votes and written feedback from a from a large set of panelists. We have about 15 million panelists globally. Um, you can test between one to eight different options. So you can get open-ended feedback. Like if you were if you had an idea for a startup, um, um, let's say around like nursing homes or car washers or so on, you could uh, you could just put that idea concept, including pricing and everything, out there and get feedback on that idea. Um, if you needed to test eight different images for a Facebook ad or something, you could put that there too. You can test images, audio, text, video. Um, and the nice thing is that because all the panelists provide written responses, you not only understand which option they prefer, you also understand why. And what's the ability to target a particular sort of type of, of user or demographic or background? Absolutely. Uh, we are really proud of the depth of targeting that we offer. So uh, we cover all the standard demographic, demographics of age, gender, income, and so on. And then we also have really deep targeting, like if you're an Amazon Prime member, um, if you're a pet owner, if you're specifically a dog or a cat or a horse or a fish owner, if you exercise frequently, if, whether you take nutritional supplements, the types of video games that you like to play. So almost anything that, um, if you're selling online, any, almost any any product category, a lot of digital entertainment categories as well. And we're constantly actually building uh, new targeting capabilities based on the requests from our users. It sounds very B2C oriented. Do you have uh, options for more of a B2B kind of targeting? We have some options. Our main focus is uh, because our panels draw from a uh, from general consumer panels. Most of the most of our targeting is B two C targeting. We do offer some limited B two B targeting, um, like small like small business owners and so on. But we're looking to expand those options too. So, what's your thinking about how to test kind of larger questions about the model? So, it's, it's the examples you're giving tend to be sort of here's the name, here's the price, here's the image, things like mm -hmm. that. 
but trying to validate whether or not kind of the, the concept is moving in the right direction. Do you have thoughts about the best way to do that? Yeah. And so it's it can be challenging to ask if, if you're thinking about getting feedback from the perspective of asking strangers at a coffee shop. Like it's um, I think the approach towards gathering feedback and data um, can can inform that a little bit. Like I think if you're going in with a very specific value proposition and solution, you can get feedback on that, but that might not be the most valuable feedback that you could get if you're still in the ideation phase, right? Because um, because you've already honed in on a solution and you're asking people to react to that one thing. Whereas I found, and sort of from what I've seen, asking um, asking questions to draw out issues around the problem and the area oftentimes provides more insight into uh, into the shape of the, the solution that you could provide, right? So rather than, let's say if you're, um, uh, let's say you're starting like an Airbnb type company or something, um, rather than trying to go out and provide your exact pitch and so on, I think it'd be more interesting if you're in the ideation phase to ask open-ended questions about, you know, what are the biggest what are the biggest challenges or downsides that you've faced with short-term rentals, like in your experience, right? Or like, what are the, what are the factors that motivate you from choosing one short-term rental versus another? Like, so asking sort of those broader questions can help drive a lot of insight and also uncover new things and sort of angles that uh, might inform you to make a better, like come up with a better solution. I like that. It actually reminds me of something that I saw uh, someone post just recently talking about Henry Ford and that thing, you know, uh, you couldn't ask people what they wanted in an automobile because they had no idea of what that exactly. was or what to ask for, you know. Yeah. Uh, but you could ask them a lot of questions about their frustrations with horses and how they need to move and how they travel and yes, you know where where the the the, the friction points are. And you go back and think about how that applies to cars. And so actually, it's it's funny it's funny, Lance, because we actually have a couple MBA professors who actually have their classes use PICFU for exactly that purpose. And so as part of their, uh, as part of uh, a capstone project, when they're supposed to come up with a, with a business idea and then a business plan and so on, part of that, uh, part of that process is to, for those students is to go on PICFU and literally ask these questions around, you know, define the problem space, like that the area that you're trying to tackle, and then go on, ask open-ended questions about frustrations, challenges, everything that people have who are operating within that pro problem space, and then use that to inform, uh, inform and justify what they're what they're proposing as part of their business. I really wish I could convince more <laughs> of the founders that I work with to, to do that first. Right? So often people will will come to me for advising. And you know, they've already built the whole solution. They've thought yeah. things through their way down the path. Uh, and, and of course, many engineers are resistant to that kind of social interaction, which is I think, one of the reasons I'm intrigued by this, uh, your solution is it gets around that. It, it allows you to do that kind of research in, a, in an organized way without having to pick up the phone and talk to human beings, which I don't know people like me have challenges with it it may it kind of makes sense that two uh two introverted engineers decided to build the solution to get unbiased feedback instead of actually going to the nearby coffee shop and talking to strangers you know <laughs> that's right yeah nothing nothing worse than talking to strangers <laughs> uh so 
One of the, when we were sort of preparing for this interview, one of the things that you brought up was that when you started to scale your business, you made the decision to go fully remote. And I wanted to sort of understand what your thinking is about that, because that certainly is a trend that I'm seeing in most startups now. Yeah. So actually, um, my co-founder, Justin, and I, we've always been remote. So we met in college and then we went to our jobs our separate ways. But um for over the over the dozen plus years that we've been working together, it's always been remote. So it's kind of been natural for us to just figure out how to work together in a remote environment. So when we made that decision to start scaling the team, um, it naturally just made sense for us to say, well, we're not, we only work from our home offices and co-working spaces and so on. We're not going to have a central office. So if we've made that decision that we're never gonna be in the same place, we might as well lean hard in the other direction and embrace the fully remote uh, working, like the working style. How, how did you find that technology's evolution over that you know, <laughs> dozen years that you were working together changed your ability to do that effectively? Uh, it's been amazing. Um, I think um, early, early on, there wasn't, there wasn't easy screen sharing. There weren't easy shared tools or anything. A lot of our conversations, you know, we, we did have to fly back and forth a lot and meet, um, do some sprints in person. Um, and so just over time, having things like digital white, you know, shared digital whiteboards and zoom and all like the improvement of video conferencing instead of just, um, what was it that it, Slack? Uh, no, not Slack. Oh, the, the um, Skype. Yes. Skype. Yes, yeah. exactly. And so just sort of moving through the evolution of remote communication has just made it easier and easier to be able to, um, to see who you're talking to, collaborate with them, work on work in shared spaces, and um, share notes and documents and so on. It's been fantastic. It's been interesting to see how COVID really took a lot of people who were you know, more older generation had been sort of uncomfortable with virtual communications and wanted to really focus on companies that you know, they could drive to talk to the person and yeah. finally pushing them over the edge to, okay, it we now know how to operate virtually and that is almost as good. Yeah, exactly. And I think um, it wasn't, you know, being remote during COVID wasn't a huge issue for for myself and my and Justin where we had been working together that way. I think as we started scaling the team during that time, there were definitely issues for some of the, uh, some of the other team members who joined who were used to working in an office first environment. And, but I think, I think we've gotten, at this point now, we've gotten past all of that. And I think uh, I'm, I'm really happy with where the team is. So how did you overcome some of those challenges of, of building a fully remote team and onboarding culture, things like that? Yeah, we had a, uh, we had a really, we have a really big written culture on, in ter terms of our handbook. We had a great, uh, great uh, people's operations manager who helped us put together sort of like team handbooks and, and documents and sort of culture documents that uh, were integral to every new team member's onboarding. Um, we have very regular uh, team sort of socials, gatherings, team building events in a virtual environment um, to be able to give opportunity for team members to get to know each other in a non, I mean, in a less work-like environment, right? And so we, I think we lean hard, pretty hard into those things to make sure that people are able to build connection beyond just the work items that they are working on. And so I'm interested that you've got a large written culture. What, so what do you put in your written culture materials? 
Um, well, it's a lot of project management stuff. Like, I mean, I think, mm. you know, in, in terms of the remote, uh, remote work and so on, like we have a lot of, uh, most of our work items are all written down and, uh, very async. So we try, we try to have as few meetings as possible. Um, so our team is, I think, um, pretty much every continent now. And I think nine, nine, nine or over, over like a dozen countries. And so, we're all, we're spread across all these different time zones. Um, we have a narrow band of time where most of the meetings, most of our team meetings occur. Otherwise, it's very much a async, you know, um, uh, async work culture where people are allowed to work their own hours at their, you know, their own pace, their own hours. We have people who on the team who are digital nomads who travel around to different time zones. But basically, as long as we're able to coordinate during those um, those key overlapping hours and everyone's able to do their work, then then everything is great. And how big is the team now? Um, we're at about 17 right now. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's an interesting size. I've, I've always found that there's a real, I mean, there's a big phase transition when you go from just the founders and co-founders to starting to hire people. And then around about you hit 20 people, suddenly... <laughs> Uh, a perfectly flat organization kind of stops working. Mm-hmm. Uh, and are you starting to experience that? And, and yeah, we've definitely, uh, we've definitely experienced that. And I think um, we, uh, we hit, we went through an up and down sort of a growth phase and, and um, uh, we pulled back a little bit in terms of team size over the past couple of years. So we've gotten as big as, you know, low twenties and then pulled back a little bit with, with the economy and everything else. Um, but what you mentioned is absolutely right, Lance. That it's uh, we've I've definitely felt the phase shift between small team, everyone in a room, everyone can work together on the same problems, um, to sort of a much not a much larger team. We're still quite a small team, but it just work doesn't operate the same way, right? Where it's a, like a perfectly flat organization that like you have different teams and different uh, different parts of an organization and and layers of management and so on. Yeah, you need to have some more organization around yes. what gets done, who does what, who's responsible, as opposed to just leaning over or going into a Slack channel. And hey, <laughs> it's definitely been a phase transition for us as founders to go from um, working on everything and understanding every, uh, you know, when when it's just the founding team to un- from understanding everything that goes on in the business and the product to taking to taking a step up and. Um, working with managers and work and not being involved in sort of the nitty gritty work as well. So that's been an interesting transition. Right. Yeah. Cause you're, you're moving into the levels of abstraction in the yes, business and, exactly. uh, you know, yeah. Giving away responsibilities. Giving away is, the Legos is a, uh, it's a key thing. Right. It, it is utterly important. And, and almost, I think everyone finds it challenging to, yeah. especially when you've been doing it, you know exactly how this works and you give it to someone else and they do it differently and maybe to begin with not as well and you know but you still need to let them do it or they'll yeah. never be able to take over from you exactly exactly and we keep, we tell ourselves that all the time right different is not worse different could be better you know like you we have to operate with uh with a principle of trust and a principle of um you know um of assuming best intentions in terms of both work and conversation and so on. And so I think we're making progress on that. So excited for what's ahead. Excellent. So are there any other sort of closing thoughts you'd like to share with the feel the boot audience? Um, I think that sure. Um, Test often and have patience. 
I think that uh, I think that success. Um, I think that success comes through repetition, uh, repetition of effort. And oftentimes I see a lot of other entrepreneurs, um, give up on their efforts before, before they get to that point where the, where, where their efforts take fruit and pay off. I like that. Yeah. Uh, cause testing isn't a one-time thing. It's, it's not yeah. like you could say I have done testing. No, uh, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's a perpetual thing. It's part of the process. Excellent. Well, I think that's a great spot to end. Thanks so much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Lance. Great chatting with you. Thanks for watching this interview with John Lee of PicFu. I hope you found it useful and interesting. And don't forget to go down into the description of this episode and pick up that coupon code so you can get a discount on PicFu if you want to give it a try. If you'd like to talk to me for more one-on-one -on -one advice, don't hesitate to get on my calendar. All the options for getting advising with me, paid and unpaid, are available at feeltheboot.com advising. And I hope you'll sign up. I love talking to founders. Until next time, ciao.